Welcome to Southern Sense Talk Radio with your host, the radio chick, Annie Ubellis. Join Annie on Tuesdays and Fridays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time with an open chat room full of her regulars. And yes, you can even call in. Call 917-889-3675. That's 917-889-3675 to be a part of the action on the phone line. Not able to listen live? Not a problem. You can always catch Annie, the radio chick, and Southern Sense Talk Radio podcast in archives at southern-sense.com. So sit back, relax, and enjoy Southern Sense the right way. Listen, guys, I got something special just for my listeners. If you follow me, you know I usually don't hawk products. I stick to the issues important to you and me. But I think I can't keep this to myself. You may want to check this out and get in on the ground floor before everyone else jumps on the bandwagon. Now, this is just for you, my listeners. I joined up with Team Earth Water. Earth Water is a company that is faith-based and patriotic. Earth Water is an amazing water. It will soon be the rage of the nation and is going worldwide. It has over 70 antioxidants and minerals. It's good, trust me. I already sleep better. I dropped one of my prescriptions, and I'm possibly looking to maybe drop another one soon. So ask yourself, do you want to make a few extra bucks on the side while getting healthier? <laughs> Who doesn't? So if so, check out the Earth Water link on my homepage at Southern Sense. That's the name of the show. Put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com. All right, and welcome to another exciting adventure here on Blog Talk Radio, SHR Media, the Lone Star Daily News. Oh, up on iTunes, Stitcher, Spreaker, and half a dozen other different places. Ah, just check it out. Uh, go to the name of the show, put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com. Oh, man, I'm your hostess with the most is the radio chick who has no idea what the heck I am doing today, <laughs> along with my confused co-host, the new nickname for Curtis, Confused Code. <laughs> Oh, Curtis. Yes, Bennett. Oh, good afternoon, Curtis. I've been promoted from courageous to confused. It's good to be back. As you know, I wasn't wasn't here Friday, but I'm back. And um, I can say that I did early voting a couple of times last week. um, And it's been a low turnout, but basically there's been more Republicans that's been showing up in my area. So I'm not sure about anywhere else, but that's a promising sign. That is. That is because traditionally the Democrats are the ones that show out for early voting and conservatives and Republicans don't. Uh, So if our grassroots is so motivated that they are now taking advantage of early voting, that is a very, very good sign. You know, um, we did miss you on Friday, and Kel came in halfway through the show and joined us, which is fun. Uh, But Kel is up in the mighty blue yonder. 
Uh, she's up uh, taking a trip over to Scotland, so we wish her a safe journey. want to welcome those that are up in our chat room, and I see some people up in our switchboard, some good friends of ours, so a shout out to them out there. We're up today. Uh, we are back up on Facebook and YouTube. I don't know what the glitch was on uh, Friday, but... Uh, those are the breaks. Anyway, we got ourselves a great show today. We've got three different guests. We've got your friend from Putnam County, Buddy uh, Goddard. Goddard. He'll be joining us. Yep, that's what I said, uh, Buddy Goddard. And uh, we have coming in at the second half for about 15, 20 minutes, someone who's going to challenge Kristen Gillibrand in New York for that Senate seat. Yay! Her name is Michelle Chelle Farley. She'll be joining us at 3 o'clock. And then we have a new author out. He's a political science professor, believe it or not, and his book is called Superhero Ethics, 10 Comic Book Heroes, 10 Ways to Save the World, Which which One Do We Need Most Now? It's an interesting book, and I didn't know there were political science teachers that were still conservative out there. So, hey, our future students do have a chance. Anyway, oh, a uh, we got a lot to do. Yeah, we got a lot to do, a lot to talk about, and a lot of fun to have. Um, if anyone finds out about the Manafort verdict, uh, they have been, as far as I know, as of a few minutes ago, they were still uh, in deliberations, and uh, Michael Cohen may be doing a plea deal. So we may have some uh, news coming up during the show. That said, as I take a deep breath, anyone that listens to the show knows that we start off each and every show with a dedication to a fallen hero. And today's dedication is going to go out to Deputy Sheriff Ryan Douglas Zirkel of the Marion County Sheriff's Office out of California. His end of watch was Thursday, March 15th of this year. And this is from Mercury News. And it reads, A Marion County Deputy Sheriff was killed responding to an emergency call early Thursday on March 15th, after his vehicle hit a tree along Highway 1 north of Point Ryan's station. The deputy was identified as Ryan Zirkel, 24, of Petaluma. He was a 2011 graduate of San Marion High School in Novato, where he was a standout athlete in football, basketball, and baseball. Deputy Ryan Zirkel was a 2011 graduate. Marion County Sheriff Robert Doyle made the announcement on that day with teary-eyed law enforcement officers standing shoulder to shoulder at the back of the room. As you can imagine, today is a sad and difficult day, not only for Ryan Zirkel's family, but for the men and women of Marion County Sheriff's Office, Doyle said. Durkle had been a deputy for only two and a half years. He survived by his mother and father two older brothers, and a fiancé with whom he had recently purchased a house in Petaluma. According to a preliminary investigation by the California Highway Patrol, Zirkel lost control of his car as it entered a left curve on the road on Highway 1 north of Point Reyes Station at about midnight. The car was traveling south, careened off the right side of the road. Doyle said it was not raining at the time, but the road was wet. He said Zirkel was responding to a call in which someone called 911 and hung up without saying what the problem was. Authorities were able to pinpoint where the call came from. No reason for the call has been identified. I repeat, no reason. 
for the call has been identified. Doyle said not long after the 911 call was reported, another 911 caller reported hearing the sound of a traffic accident. Doyle said that since the Sheriff's Communications Center hadn't heard from Zirkel in several minutes, his partner was dispatched to check on the crash. His partner was the first person to reach the crash scene. County firefighters responded and arrived soon after with several deputy sheriffs, Doyle said. It took 35 minutes to get Zirkel out of the car. He was then flown by a helicopter ambulance to Petaluma Valley Hospital. Deputies, paramedics, and doctors did all they could, Doyle said. But Ryan didn't survive. Doyle said Zirkel was one of several young deputies who have joined the sheriff's department recently to replace retirees. Ryan was enthusiastic. He wanted to serve the community that he grew up in. His friends and beat partners described him as always having a smile on his face, always happy, always very, very positive. A San Marion High School, Zirkel was captain of the basketball team and most valuable player on the baseball team in his senior year. The school's basketball and baseball teams won league titles that year. He had an incredible run in athletics in high school, said Mark Whitburn, Zirkel's baseball coach at San Marion. How many kids get to be a starting quarterback for their football team, the point guard for their basketball team, and the shortstop for baseball? He had an infectious smile. The team just gravitated toward him, Whitman said. He made everybody better, and he made the world just a better place to be in. Kevin Goyer was a San Marion's varsity football coach when Zirkel was a sophomore. We pulled him up from the junior varsity to the varsity in his sophomore year when we were encountering some injuries, and he led us to a victory. He was a phenomenal young man, a hard worker, and conscientious. He got along with everybody. Dan Hickey, who was Zirkel's football coach his junior and senior years, said, we didn't win a championship, but we did beat Novato for the first time in nine years his senior year. He worked 110% in every sport he did. Kevin Conklin, the operations manager for the city of Novato's recreation department, said, I've known Ryan since he was a little kid. He was in our gymnastics program as a boy. He was one of the great guys of all time. This is a terrible tragedy. Chris Glennon, a lifelong friend and teammate of Zirkel's in the championship basketball team, said meeting him in kindergarten and growing up a block away from him is one of the best things that ever happened to me. I'm an only child, but he'll always be the closest thing I have to a brother, Glennon said. I would have been lost without him growing up. He's been my best friend for 20 years, and it's just not fair this happened to him. Thursday afternoon, a long law enforcement procession escorted a car carrying Zirkel's body down Highway 101 from Sonoma County. The procession went into downtown San Rafael and then to Montes, Montes Chapel of the Hills on San Anselmo. Today's show is dedicated to Deputy Sheriff Ryan Douglas Zirkel. It's also proof positive that our law enforcement lives mean a lot. Those false 911 calls do cost lives. So this show is dedicated to all of our law enforcement 
first responders and emergency responders. It is also dedicated to all the brave men who serve in our nation, in our military, from the birth of our nation through today and into the future. We dedicate to them this song by Todd Allen Herndon. My name is America. May God bless each and every one.
it, and we're back. And you're here listening to Southern Sense here on Blog Talk Radio, SHR Media, the Lone Star Daily News, up on iTunes, Stitcher, Spreaker. Oh, good Lord. Go to the name of the show. Put a hyphen in the middle, southern-sense.com. I'm your hostess with the mostest, the radio chick, finally getting my act together, along with courageous and confused Curtis. Uh, Curtis, okay. uh, we've got ourselves a great show. Uh, we've got so much to talk about, and it looks like we've got your, your buddy in on the studio already, so let's welcome your buddy, Buddy Goddard, on. Good afternoon, Buddy. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Hey, how's it oh, going, man. Shirley? Uh, couldn't be better. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Buddy is the chairman of our um, Putnam County Board of County Commissioners in Florida. Yes, he is. Yeah, And he's been on the show before, so uh, we're going to have a lot of fun with him. There's so much going on, so much to talk about. And, you know, um, I caught recently in the... Um, in the newspaper, there was another shooting down in Florida in a school, not in a school, but on school property. And they had a brief blurb in the newspaper. And it seems like, you know, one group of guys were going after another. It was an aimed target. So they gave it a little bit of play for like maybe an hour or two in the news. And then it disappeared. And I'm thinking to myself, oh, my goodness, isn't this the media molding the story? It's not about illegal guns being used. It's not about school shootings. It's about molding the conversation. Because it wasn't an in-school shooting, it wasn't something that you can go after you know, uh, legal gun owners with. It was just two rival guys shooting at each other. It comes off the front page onto the back burner. Isn't this the hypocrisy that we're seeing in the media? Well, yes. It, I mean, it is and it isn't. Um, they have a, a a job to do, and that's to to sell news. Um, and as a you know, sometimes they have to improve the story a little bit. But uh, yeah, they're they, you know, and anybody who's telling the story is going to tell it in their view. Um, so I, I I don't know what we can do about it. We uh, we can acknowledge it and try to get the right truth out there, but. Uh, overall, you know, as it goes, is the 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 truth is in the storyteller, I guess. <laughs> now, I don't know if uh, your county commission is as dysfunctional as ours is, and because of that, uh, we've got people running for seats that previously would never have uh, gotten into uh, into government. I had my Tea Party meeting last night, and out of the seven seats on our school board that are open for election. This November, we've got 20 candidates, and that blows my mind away. Are you seeing something similar going on down there too? No, not really. I see some running, um, and, and a lot of them that are running, they they're not quite understanding how government works. They think they can come in there and then they have the magic wand and they can make all these big changes, and um, uh, so they're they're infam- they're not familiar with the way that government works. We're, I, like myself, I'm one of five that makes this decision. Now, fortunately, out of the five, we do not agree. Now, don't ever think that we do. We don't agree, but we do agree that we want to do what's best for our county. So we will hash it out back and forth, and and 
we 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 basically come to a compromise. We, you know, you, you're just not going to make everybody in that room happy, but we come to a good compromise that uh, that we really feel is going to help the county. Now that doesn't happen. Where there's a, uh, in our school board, there's a lot of battling going on. Uh, fortunately, uh, for us as the commission, we were all businessmen, and we understand that you know you're just going to have to give and take in order to get the end result. That that's all there is to it. Um, and yeah. but that doesn't work in every case. But let me get back to where I was. We have certain people who are running who think, and that's the problem, they think they know how this is supposed to work. And um, if they do win the office, like I've even had uh, one of the commissioners tell me he thought he could come in there and make all these changes and what he found out, uh, that's not the way it is. There is a protocol of how things are done, and, uh, and it's a learning curve, and he's learned it. But a lot of young candidates uh, will a lot of times say a lot of things to get things stirred up with those that might vote them in without understanding that they can't do the things that they say they, they're planning on. Well, you know, what, what makes me uh, optimistic, because I had my Tea Party meeting last night, and I had four of those candidates for the school board, plus someone that we've uh, been able to get up and run against Jim Clyburn for the congressional seat that he's had since 1991. Uh, so I had uh, five candidates in a forum, and listening to these guys, and they're, one of them, that were running for this, two of these guys were running for the same seat out of District 5. And the two of them were giving each other compliments because they were in such accordance. But one of the candidates, I re, it dawned on him, I was watching his face as it was, he realized he didn't have enough knowledge where the guy that he was an opponent of had the ability and knowledge. And he basically said, <laughs> basically saying, I'm backing this guy. Uh, so we do have quality candidates that are starting to show up. They've been going to the school board meetings. They've been looking at it. They've been seeing they have not been following the Roberts rules uh, at all. Uh, had one of the school board officers on there, and he's saying, hey, listen, I was the parliamentarian. I was the one that was in charge to make sure the meeting ran, and they wouldn't even listen to me. That's how dysfunctional our school board is. They just simply would not even listen to me and follow the rules and procedures, So, which is why we've been going after people that we know have a solid background and said, get out there, run, run, please run. Well, yes, definitely should have more people out there. Uh, somehow, though, I wish that there was a, a way that they could, you know, you know, uh, what do you call it, a pre-qualification before you run for candidacy that you need to understand this is how things work. Um then they don't have it. You know, I want to run for office, which I did the same thing. I want to run for office. I'd like to see these changes, but really did not understand all the things you have to do. And then once you're in there, the things that you cannot do, uh, as a matter of fact, early on, you go straight into an ethics class and find out you can't do this and you can't do that. And you can't do this. Um, the young candidates or the new candidates aren't aware of these things, even when you try to explain it to them. Buddy, well, um, because we, yes, sir. we all focus on 
national, you know, politics. And just wondering why should we be more focused on local politics? Well, because local, it's like after I won this office, which I wanted to make changes in our county. But immediately after winning the office, where do you want to go from here? Are you going to run for, you know, further on up? And it's almost like an encouragement that the, the, like the lower office, you just keep moving your way on up, which I guess is a, not a bad career plan. However, I don't believe the government was ever meant to be a career. Um, but, you know, like myself, I don't want to. But there are a lot of them that move up, move up, and move up in our government. Doesn't mean they're any better. It just means they're more seasoned. Um, you know, and that's, that is kind of, you know, that's a, a double-edged sword there. Of course, one of the problems that, that we have is the ongoing career politician, you know, and you want to keep good people in there, but I, I'm I'm one that thinks after so many years you need to step down. You just need to step down. Your thinking is going to become stagnant. You're going to become complacent. Uh, it's time to step aside. I mean, even watching in the churches, uh, you know, the old deacons. If the old deacons stay in there, everything runs exactly the same, and they start losing people. When you start putting in younger deacons, you start keeping younger people, and it just keeps it. It, it, it expands, uh, and our but, government should be the same way. But I guess let me put it this way: Why should the average Joe Blow pay attention more to local um, government versus national? I mean, what's going on at the local level that we really should be focused on? As you know, um, taxpayers. Well, on local, on the local side, because that's where you live. That's, you know, that's absolutely where you live. And again, it goes into these these young politicians or, or newer politicians, more than likely, or are going to advance the way our system is. Are going to advance up. You get to know what kind of person this is, uh, what they can accomplish on the on the county side or on the, the smaller government side before they move into bigger government. Uh, I think it's, it's, it, you know, it's where you get to know that person. Uh, we have a lot of people who are in office that, um, that almost it's as though they're magical people and you don't get to go see them. So I think when, when, when you start out on the local or the the local end where you can actually meet these people, somewhat understand what's what's rolling around in their head, that their thinking is for the people or their thinking is for their pocket. You know, it, it's funny because you talk to any of your, your local neighbors or to anyone in your social group and you ask them, do you know who your local councilman is or do you know who your school board representative is? I would tell you, probably tell you nine times out of ten, they don't. They're lucky True. if they even know who the vice president is. I mean, people are so uh, disconnected from government because they don't feel like feel that they are part of the government. They feel a complete disconnect uh, with the way our, our system has evolved. 
Yes, and it's you know that's I think that's the secret of the smaller government or the, the like local government. I I try to make it a habit to get out here and see people and talk to them. Um, but and even today I was talking to some people who knew I'm a county commissioner, and they literally had that. Of course, now we're doing local voting, and they literally had to ask me, "Who are the other commissioners?" And uh, it, 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 and like you said, it's almost it's almost stunning. You live in this county. Uh, quite often, we're in the newspaper, and you don't. And you know, you, you you're wanting to be part of the voting system, and you don't know who is is in office right now. And it's uh, I don't know. It is shocking, but. Um, I do try to get out there and, and, and in my own little way, try to educate them how the government works, why it does work like it is, why this is still one of the best systems there is by far across the nation. I've had the luxury of going outside of the United States and seeing how other countries are. We still have – ours might be flawed to a point, but it's still the best system in the world. Well, that I, that I definitely awful. agree with. <laughs> no, that's all right. That I definitely uh, agree with because my county council sees me sitting there and they're going, oh, Lord, what are we in for now? They know me. Um, yeah, it's going to be it's going to be an interesting uh, election season because, like I said, we had the Tea Party meeting and it was it was so much fun to have the five candidates up there and all fielding questions at the same time and bouncing off of each other. And it was a, such a meeting that was so educational that they got to see that, you know, the, the people in the audience were not dummies. They were aware of what was going on. And we were able then to test their mettle to see, you know, is this someone that we really do want to get behind and vote for? Uh, so it was, it, it's, something I want to see more communities do. And I'm sorry that people aren't supporting tea parties because I've been getting kept mine going here since 2009 and the people walking out saying, thank you that I'm glad you're still doing this, but getting the citizen involved in government, that's the difficult part. Trying to encourage people to know what's going on. How do you do that? You just try to go out there and talk to them is what I try to do that, you know, if, if, you can't you can't sit back and complain about everything going on if you don't get involved as to why it does what it does. How come government works like it does? What can you do to help? Quite often, you know, uh, let's take something simple as though that we've been getting all these rains. The simplest flooded roads. How do I know your road is flooded if you don't let me know it? You know, I know they they really think that we have that magic globe that we're looking in and we can see all these little problems and so when they get involved and they 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 actually call you uh in today's world send an email you don't even have to personally talk to me send an email but if they'll let you know what's going on then we can possibly take care of it but if you just sit back and you you rub the rock is what i call it you rub the rock and wish that somebody would come fix this it's never going to get fixed. Uh, you, you must, in, in order for, this is your government, and in order for you to get these things going or at least understand how they go, you need to get involved. 
And it doesn't mean being at every meeting. It means paying attention to what's in the newspaper. Take the moment to call one of your local representatives and talk to them. Uh, you know, get the, get the, what do you call it, the banner back and forth. You tell them what you need, they can tell you what they can do. Um, but you need to have that interaction. And I think most, especially local government, are very willing to sit and talk with anybody if they're uh, open. You know, if they're just going to complain, there's you, you almost put your fingers in your ears, sadly enough. But if they're willing to sit there and have a good conversation, how much they could learn and how much they could, not being an elected official, but how much they could help change the course of their county if they're really wanting to see it change. Or city, it's, it's, to me it's the same thing. <laughs> hey, buddy, well, what, what complaints do you get the most about? Is it um, high taxation, crime, um, um, high millage yeah. rates? What is the most complaints you hear about? Well, ours, ours, and I'm sure it's the same all over, uh, you know, having a good workforce. Uh, we do not have a good workforce in our county. Um, there are companies that want to, uh, that they're trying to hire people and not being able to. And some of that just is because of our, our logistics or our, our lawyers uh, to protect each company or whatever, that you must be 18 years old. A lot of jobs that used to go to high school kids like myself, now they're out of reach. You must be 18 years old. And then you've got the other factor, and I know this is all over because uh, I was in a big city for a long time, had the same problem hiring. You're trying to compete with the government. And I hate to say it that way, but here's the government paying uh, someone to stay at home. You don't have to go to work. You just have to make the appearance that you're trying to go to work. We'll send you a check every month, uh, and you can sleep in late. You don't have to go to work. And that amount is almost equal to what you would start somebody out at, and you can't compete with that. I'm wanting you to be here at 630 in the morning, dressed and ready to go to work, and we're going to take taxes out of your check, not when they can stay at home. Uh, I used to put an ad out. We'd get maybe 20 people come to apply for it. Out of that 20, you can automatically take 10 of them off of there because when you call them back, they weren't interested in the job. They were only interested in applying for the job to make it look good so they continue their check. The other 10, if you do get them in there, half of them are going to be on drugs. And it's just saying that's the way it was. So I end up with five. And out of those five, um, sometimes you'll end up with one that's actually shows up every day, goes to work, and uh, does their job. And it and and that's no, it, just what it is. And I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I was going to say this was the main topic of our meeting last night. This is what a lot of the people in the audience were questioning, because we have to get a link between the county government, you know, your county commission. And the school district and to the, the schooling that the kids have today, you know, growing up, we had shop, you had home ec, you had this or that, that trained uh -huh. you because not every person is a college candidate. Not every person wants to go to college. Not every person can afford to go to college and not everyone is able 
physically or mentally to go to college. They that may not even be college material, but if there's a technical skill or a service job or something like that that we can train that person for, once they leave high school and they leave mommy and daddy's nest, <laughs> hope, um, they would be able to be hired. But, you know, one of the programs that they had here in our school district, and unfortunately it wasn't followed through with, and they were teaching the kids to become teachers themselves because we have a real need for qualified school teachers. And we have such a, 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 a need for this. They were saying, all right, let's get them when they start middle school, find out if they do want to become a teacher and start them along that path. So now when they get to the time where they graduate high school, they're all ready for college to get whatever degree it is to become a teacher and then return back home. So, yeah, maybe they move back into mom and dad's house until they can find their own place. But at least we're guaranteeing that they'll be coming back to us and be hired by us. And the college end of it fell through because there was no conversation between the school superintendent and the college. He refused to make that connection. So what do you do when you have a school board that will not talk to the county or a school board that will not talk to local businesses or colleges? What do you do then at that point to encourage kids, the people in your county to train for the jobs that are available? Well, some of that goes back to the parents. Um, I can remember as my children, uh, I had both boys and girls. And before they could get a driver's license, I required that show me that they can take the tire completely loose, break those lugs loose, jack it up, get the spare tire out, put the spare tire on and put it back on there. I made them take the battery loose, clean the battery post, put the battery back in. I made them take it, physically take the battery out, put the battery back in, put the post back on it. And just as a side note, I made them change the oil in that vehicle. Now, I did I'll that. I'm going to go one better because – my dad, my dad did the same thing to me. He did the same exact because before you go for your first driving lesson, not only did he have me change the oil, rotate the tires, he had me align the headlights and file and recap the spark plugs. I knew how to work that okay. engine before I got behind the wheel. Well, if you've been operating, oh, what I looked at is I don't want my children broke down because they don't know how to do this, and it wasn't just the boys. More and more so on my girls. Uh, it's one thing to uh, bat your eyes and get the guy to change your flat tire. It's another thing to be stranded on a road, isolated, and you don't know how to change that tire, and you're raped and killed. No, sir, that's not doing. That's not even allowable. Uh, and they thought I was mean, but you're not getting your driver's license until you can do these things. And so they wanted their license. They did this. Now, my girls have told me since then, Pew, very much. I have one daughter that's actually a drill instructor in the Marines. Uh, no, thank you. They know how to take care of themselves. They do know how to cook. They do know how to clean. They know how to do these things. And I think we're not doing that enough. You want the best for your children, but I think what we're doing when we're trying to do the very best is taking away those fundamentals that they have got to have. Same thing with schooling. Schooling, you need to push as hard as you can to get most education you can, even if you're not going to college. Now, girls, again, are, are more mature than the boys. I, I, uh, I'm, I'm guilty of it. I got out of high school and, and 
I thought I knew everything in the world. But once they are ready to go back and get that bachelor's degree or that degree, whatever they want, they can if you've given them the fundamentals. You know, uh, you go back to, to math. You cannot do algebra if you cannot do simple math. If you can't do multiple triangles, you'll never, ever, ever understand how decimals work. You'll never understand how advanced mathematics works if you can't do the basics. And we're not giving them the basics. That's, that's just the way I look at it. We're not giving them the basics in life that you need to survive. Now, if they have the basics and they don't have a college degree, but we've given them the basics, they can get a decent job. And they can now set themselves up to advance that education. And how many have done it? How many have gotten their bachelor's degrees in the 30s? Uh, many of them. But there's two factors that everybody has to have. Number one's ability. If you don't have the ability to learn, then, then we understand. And then you have to have, you know, the ambition or the desire. If you don't have, you know, the ability and the desire, you cannot accomplish much in this world. I'm sorry. Again, I got off. <laughs> no, that's right. That, that, that's absolutely perfect. You know, uh, because my parents made sure that we all had that ability. We all knew how to cook, to clean, to do everything. Um, my sister, she started college for um uh, be a social worker. <laughs> My sister at that time had a liberal bent, but God bless our lover dearly. And she dropped out of two years and she really didn't know what she wanted to do because she wasn't happy with it. And my parents hounded her and hounded me to force her to go back into college. She says, no, trust me. She's going to see the light of day and she will go back. She will decide what she wants to do and she'll go back. And she did. Two years later, she went to back to uh, college. She got a law degree. Not only did she get a law degree, she got past the bar exam, the top 10%. And you know that means that she could get a license to practice anywhere oh. within the United States. And she's been a, senior, a partner in two different uh, law firms, and she's still working as an attorney, and she's as solid conservative as they can get. So she, like I said, she saw the light, but sometimes you have to give them a little head to let them see where they want to go. But the problem I have with the social programs that you're mentioning is it's not welfare to work. And at the time I applied for unemployment back in the 1930s time, um, you had to go in, you had to stand in line, you had to be at the counter on time. Lord, if you were five mm-hmm. minutes late, you were going to be denied your benefits. And you had to prove that you actually went out for a job interview. Why didn't you get the job? You had to answer why you didn't get it. And you, after a certain amount of time, they took you off unemployment. But now you have, under the Obama administration, unending unemployment. We've got to stop that. Right. We've got to bring in the welfare work programs to take <laughs> away those incentives. Well, now, we that took was my rant. Right. We, well, what we've done is we, we, we sped up the, the welfare program. Uh, it, it, it's a horrible system. It, it just is. Uh, uh, I'll just throw this in there real quick. A long time ago, I had a motorcycle accident, and I, I messed my leg up pretty bad. So I had to go through a lot of surgeries, thought I was going to lose my leg. Uh, but anyway, once once I had to actually had to learn how to walk again, okay, um, once I got to where I could walk again, that leg did not operate, you know, even though my brain would tell it for its toes to move and we're backing up or we're going to do whatever. The leg did not understand it. 
it just got, you know, where it didn't care. The muscle had deteriorated. Um, all of that had happened, and that's what happens when you just leave people. You do not even have to worry about waking up in the morning. No, we got this. You know, we're going to take care of you in every aspect, and you lose all your ability. And I see it over and over and over with these people that uh, I had a friend of mine that got laid off. And anyway, long story is he ended up enjoying that time. And he felt, he, he called me up one day and he says, I've gotten sorry. I have absolutely gotten sorry. I have no self-worth and I didn't understand it. I see it now. And he immediately got out, got out of that program, went back to work. Now, it gives you, and you know, when you ask somebody, what do you do for a living? Most of them are proud to tell you, I don't care if it's washing dishes. I work for Bennigan's washing dishes. They're, they're, you know, they'll tell you what they are, you know, they, they, immediately. They're proud of who they are. And when, you know, you talk to the other one, well, I, you know, I, I uh, received, uh, you know, federal funds. They, you've taken away their integrity. And it's wrong. One of the things, and he was a Democratic president, but I always admired Roosevelt for at least coming up with the, what was that called, the the Citizens Conservative, uh, I can't remember what it was now. Citizens Conservative. Yes. Okay. Where he saw where there's government things that need to be done. I've got people out here that need work. Okay. Now, he couldn't possibly do that today, but he said, look, if you want to go to work, you go work at this whatever, Yosemite Park. You go out here, they'll put 20 guys in a, a you know, in a basically a barn, put 20 beds in there. There was no air conditioning, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, the, you know, services were very poor. But these people got some self-respect that they were working they could put money in an envelope and send it back to their family. You know, wasn't great work, but it was proud work. And it's things that we see today that are left from that, that little thing there. Now that was in one form, the early form of welfare, but to me it was a hand up and not a handout. And to me, there's a big difference. It's the same thing as when I was a kid, I needed some money. I grabbed a lawnmower and a gas can and I pushed it. Miss Miller's yard wasn't that bad, but she'd pay me $5 and mow that yard. Uh, You know, I think people are more inclined to help other people if they see they're trying to do it themselves. And we take that away when we let them get on these government systems. If it was back to the old days where you actually came in and you, you had to sit down, like you said, and you could even see posters on the wall that telling you, here's how to get back to your education. Here's how to do these things. Buddy. Anyway. As, yes, a, sir. as a county commissioner and as the chairman, what are some of the things you, you're most um, happy with having accomplished? <laughs> Probably the happiest to me is balancing our budget. Uh, something that used to just drive me nuts when they would tout out there 
yes, we balanced our budget by taking $2 million out of our savings and we balanced it. So now, you know, maybe I missed that particular part of economics class, but that is not balancing your budget. Balancing your budget is balancing it with the money you have. It's not taking money out of your savings account. One time getting caught and, and, and having to do that, I, I can almost understand it. But repeatedly doing this until you dwindle down your reserves to almost nothing is ridiculous. So that's one of the things I went in. Uh, other commissioners, again, all five, were on board that we got to do whatever it takes to balance this budget. And I'm talking about seriously balance it. First, let's get it balanced. Then let's see what we can do about building our reserves back up. And I'm very proud that we have done that. We've, we've brought our millage down. We've balanced our budget, and we're putting money aside. I'm, I'm, if there's anything to be proud of, I'm very proud of what our commission has done with there. And then we're moving into other things where we're looking at um, things that are dead cost to us. Our landfill. Our landfill is a, a cost. It's not. It doesn't. Uh, it's not uh, solvent by any means. Take it away. Again, that costs the taxpayer. So we're looking at different ways to enhance that to make it solvent. We're not trying to make a pile of money. What we're trying to do is take it where we can we can do our landfill and take um, you know the, the refuse from the constituents without it costing them. But anyway, we're looking at that. We're looking at a lot of things. The biggest problem, I think, every every county across the nation is infrastructure. Infrastructure is a very costly but necessary commodity, and uh, you know it, it 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 it's it's money that people don't see where it goes. When you put that big drainage line in, they don't see it until they flush that toilet. You know, it's 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 not something they particularly care. You know, when they turn that faucet on and fresh water flows out of there, they're not as concerned as how it got there. Uh, but that's, that is part of the government. How do we provide these at a reasonable cost and keep everything else? They still expect the roads. They still expect street lights. They still expect, expect the libraries. And our libraries should be more used than they are. But, uh, you know, that, that, that I think is our battles. But as far as the major accomplishment, balancing that budget to me is to be our most shining light. Well, do you ever get an opportunity to work with other counties or learn from them the things that work for them yes. that we could borrow? Yes, we do get the opportunity. Quite often we go to these uh, uh, in our in our state, it's, it's called the uh, Florida League, uh, For, Florida Association of Counties, and we get the opportunity to talk to other counties, and it, and it's actually enlightening. Uh, our county, uh, our tax base is, is uh, I think it's just over 50% that actually pays part of the taxes. So we have a bit of a struggle. We don't have the money coming in. It, it makes us fiscally constrained. Uh, but we're not the only ones. We're about dead in the middle as far as the other counties. And when you listen to these other counties, some of them, uh, we happen to live next to the fastest-growing county, okay, St. John's County. 
Okay, they they have a lot of money coming in. They've got beachfront properties. They've got businesses moving in. Uh, I mean, they've just got a lot of money that's moving in there. But, again, they've got infrastructure. So it's very costly to take care of that infrastructure and build schools. Uh, they're building another school now. They've built, uh, I think, five in the past several years. And so the, these are very, very costly. And they're wondering, how are we going to pay this? How are we going to pay this? Look at our crime levels have gone up. You know, they, they've, so they've got all these problems, uh, but they have, you know, it's like you think they have plenty of money, but uh, they're dealing with the same things we are. They're just dealing with it on a bigger scale than what we are. Um, so every county is going to have their own battles one way or the other. Um, it's just a matter of looking at the, you know, the whole picture. How you want to do these things, what's the most cost-effective way to do this, and is now the right time to do this? Um, but, yeah, talking to the other counties and the other commissioners, uh, we have a lot of the same things, and what helps is, when when they have stumbled or they found something that didn't work or something that did work, they're very eager to pass that on to the other counties and let us know, um, you know what what how this works. Well, that sounds wonderful. I just wish my counties would be able to do that because we do have competing counties here, and they're highly competitive. We've got Jasper County where they're starting to uh, they're trying to build a port as the Savannah Jasper Port. Because uh, we we need deep water ports, but that would import jobs here into our county, the adjoining county. But we also have the problem where we have certain neighborhoods that cross county lines. So on one side of the street, something may be a regulation. On the other side, it may not be. So we have a lot of competition in rather than cooperation. And that is sad. So that's one of the reasons why we're looking to turn the not only the school board over, but the county council over also. Um but that's important. We need to get the counties to start to cooperate more often. Yes, you do. I, uh, you know, again, I, I was unfamiliar of, in this case, like the uh, Florida Association of Counties. I wasn't. I didn't even know what that was. Never heard of it until I got in office. But they, I think they are probably the best part because they encourage that. You know, it's the old adage of cutting off the nose to spite the face. You know, we're all part of a connected members, um, and we, you know, grant you, you don't have to agree with what your neighbor does, but at the same time, you have to kind of get along with your neighbor because they're there. Uh, what they do does affect you. I mean, it's like uh, I heard a saying a long time ago, a man that was growing the best corn ever, you know, he won awards for his corn. His corn was great. And he made sure to give his seeds to his surrounding neighbors. Here's the, you know, these are championship corn. And he'd give seeds to all of them. And he's had people ask him, why would you do that? You know, you, you know you're known as the very, very, very best corn grower, and they're going to be competing with you. And he says, yes. But if they're growing faulty corn or inferior corn, their pollen is going to affect my corn, and I won't have as good a corn as I've had. If I give them the very best seeds and they grow the very best corn and I take care of mine, I'll always have the very best corn. It's just the way it works. 
Man, this is what I've got to get our county council to do. As a matter of fact, my councilman happens to be the chair of the board, too. So <laughs> I see him in church all the time. But I've got to encourage him to get out more to explain what is going on. You know, he does show up occasionally to our meetings when something important is happening. But when you have adjoining roads, you have, you know, certain facilities that cross county lines, it's important to get that cooperation. And that is something yes, that we're yes. missing. So, you know, it's 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 a lot of work that we at the grassroots have to do. But before we vote someone into office, we better know who the heck we're voting into office. Correct. And take the time to ask them these questions. You know, uh, not that it always works, but generally if you can ask somebody a question or look them in the face, you can pretty much tell whether they're telling them right. And, and again, that I, one thing I have learned, and I take this to heart, Women, and I'm not trying to preach, I'm just saying women, most women have what I call the gift of discernment. They can speak to a person in a short period of time and size them up very well, more so than I think a man can. Uh, If my wife tells me I don't really trust that person, she's generally right. (laughs) I might not see it. But she is generally right. When she has a feeling about a person, she's generally right on the money. Um, So I I think if you've got the opportunity to talk to that person and ask them questions, you know, it could be me asking another person a question and how they respond. My wife's paying attention to that. And afterwards, she would tell me, you know, he was lying. Now, I might not have seen that. She said, no, he wouldn't look at you. He looked at the side there. Yeah, he, he wasn't telling the truth. And, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, so, yes, when you can get out there and actually talk to these people, uh, you, you can get a lot of information and pay attention. You know, like for me, I'm fortunate. I, I, you know, I don't always agree with my wife. <laughs> we don't always see eye to eye. But uh, I, when she when she sees something like that, I take that to heart. I really do. Well, buddy, it has been a pleasure having you with us today. Uh, and, of course, Curtis knows how to get a hold of you and bring you back any time. But thank you for all the good hard work you do down there in Florida. And you've given me some ideas to bring forward to my own county council. Yes, thank you. <laughs> That's good to hear. I appreciate it. All right. Well, buddy Goodard. Take care, buddy. Thank you very much. Right. Curtis, we've got our, our next care. guest on. What a what a lead-in to our next guest, because now he's helped introduce her to our audience before I even had a chance to. So let's welcome on board Michelle Farley, who is running for Senate in the great state of New York, my former home, as you can tell from my dialect, uh, against Christian Gillibrand. Good afternoon, Shelley. How are you doing? I am great. It is wonderful to be with you, Annie. And yes, I, I was so surprised to see a 917 area code. Uh, but then when I looked at your bio, it made perfect sense. You, you understand what all the issues are in New York. And I am running against Kirsten Gillibrand, you know, who's been in office for 11 and a half years and just this month got her very first bill passed. And it was to rename a post office. So I think New York deserves better. And that is why I am running um, against her in November. Well, you've got an uphill battle there, uh, knowing 
what used to be the New York I knew, uh, what you what you have now, because uh, it used to be where you had Long Island, Nassau County, and Suffolk County was highly Republican. It's not that way anymore. Uh, what's creeped out from the city has creeped out uh, up up. Um, I'm going to call up country because I'm here in South Carolina, but up in New York may stay Mm -hmm. still red, but you've got a lot, a lot of blue on Long Island and the surrounding areas of New York City. Well, you absolutely do. But, I mean, look, if I get all the people who voted for Trump um, in New York to vote for me, um, we can win this. Um, And so we have a real opportunity. And I think so much of it is, you know, what has she actually done? Um, the president was in town last week. Um, he was saying, you know, he was at a rally and he said that I was working hard and he sees me on TV all the time and on the merits, I should win. Um, you know, that's because she's only managed to get, you know, one bill passed in 11 and a half years and which is just not good enough. I mean, in here today, it's there's all it's all the news is talking about how the senior senator from New York, Chuck Schumer, is meeting with Brett Kavanaugh, Judge Kavanaugh, and Kirsten Gillibrand won't meet with him. Uh, that's her job. She needs to do her job. Um, instead, she's just posturing. Um, she just wants to appeal to these, you know, the liberal factions of the Democratic Party um, in order to run for president. And that is not what any state wants. They want someone who is representing them and is going to think about their needs. And that's what I'm going to do in November. Well, you, I had a laugh because I was reading some of your bio and some of the things that you've said, and you call uh, Jill Brand the Ice Queen, I-C-E, yeah. Ice Queen, and I nearly fell out of my Archie bunker chair laughing. So, <laughs> <laughs> I want you to explain that. I know. Well, I mean, it's ridiculous. She was the very first senator to call for ICE to be abolished. I mean, that's crazy. I mean, especially, you know, ICE is the group that takes – MS-13, they took 796 members of the MS-13 gang off the streets last year. MS-13 is the gang that uses knives and machetes to hack to death our teenagers. I have teenagers. I don't want that to happen. I want more members of MS-13 taken off the streets, not less. It's crazy, um, and we shouldn't let it happen. And, yeah, so that's why I call Kirsten Gillibrand the ice queen, because she has made it, and she even doubled down on it. She said that when the Democrats, God forbid, take over the House and the Senate, she wants their first priority to be to abolish ICE. I mean, and and this got a lot of play in New York. It probably hasn't down in South Carolina. But do you know that ICE actually arrested a Nazi who has been living in Queens? And he was deported to Germany today. I mean, these are the kinds of things that ICE is doing. Yeah, it's 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 horrible. Uh, and the worst part is in New York, I know in New York City, when I was a cop there, when we did arrest someone that was illegal and we knew them to be illegal, we were forbidden under the administration. First, it was under Dinkins and then Giuliani, unfortunately, kept it in place that we were not allowed to notify INS, which is now ICE. Mm-hmm. You know, our hands were tied. So when you get to the Senate, would you look to see if there would be a federal law that states that, you know, law enforcement and ICE must work together? Absolutely. I mean, a great example of this is just what happened in Philadelphia. I mean, you saw that the mayor of Philadelphia um, said that law enforcement can't work with ICE. They had someone who had been deported who came back to Philadelphia. ICE knew that he was back. They just didn't know where. Um, And the Philadelphia police weren't able to help him. And he ended up raping a child. I mean, who? it was just appalling. And it's like, these are the things that we cannot allow to happen. 
And, and absolutely. So I would absolutely be in favor of that. There, there are a lot of things that, um, you know, that, that we need to get done. And that's why I want to go to D.C. and do it. And that is why my website is firegillibrand.com. Ah, I had the one that was your name for senate.com. Oh, but and, 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 so I'll both, make sure. Yes, but you know, firegillibrand.com, let's be honest, is easier to spell. You know, Shell Farley for Senate, and Shell is, you know, C-H-E-L-E, short for Michelle, you know, Farley for Senate, but it's, it's longer, more complicated. Um, firegillibrand.com is also a little catchier. We'll have to make sure I update the show page because a lot of people that listen to the show end up listening to the podcast or watch it over sure. on YouTube and up on Facebook right now. I'm live, but I'll update it on the show page to make sure that people know fire Jillibrand. And then tonight I'm going to go up on Twitter and I'm going to start blasting it out. Fantastic. <laughs> just, just Absolutely. The- <laughs> I mean, it's, it, it is absolutely crazy. I mean, but her, you know, the other nickname, you like ice queen, tell me what you think of this other one. Um, which is Jello brand. So, and the whole rationale there is that her positions keep changing basically to fit, you know, she can fit any mold. And a great example of this is when she was a member of the house, she was known as Annie Oakley. She actually talked about the fact that she kept a shotgun under her bed. She had an A rating. She's a Democrat, had an A rating from the NRA. Two years later, she is appointed to Hillary Clinton's seat when Hillary becomes Secretary of State. And she ends up with an F rating from the NRA. I mean, how is that even possible? I mean, it's just the flip-flops are amazing. And so I think Jell-O brand encapsulates that as well. So you have to tell me which one you like better, Jell-O brand or Ice Queen? Ice Queen. Ice Queen got it okay. hands down. <laughs> Good. That's for me. Unless my co-host has a different opinion. What do you think, Curtis? Oh. Curtis? I'm definitely. <laughs> Can you hear me? Yeah. Yeah, got you. <laughs> Yeah, um, I had taken time out to run and take care of some personal stuff, so I missed the question. <laughs> no problem. We're talking Lord. about what's a better nickname for Kirsten Gillibrand. Do you like the Ice Queen because she's in favor of abolishing ice? Or do you like Senator Jellobrand uh, because, you know, she keeps moving her positions to fit any mold? I like Jello. <laughs> All right, we got a 50-50. <laughs> well, we're using a boat. Well, we got the chat room open. So, guys, before we, she leaves, put up in the chat room which one you prefer, Ice Queen or Jello brand. Well, good. Actually, I, I love that. Brand. Yeah, we have not polled that question. I'm, I'm glad you're doing it. And, look, so many of these right. things, I'd like, there's, you know, there's more that we need to do. And, um, you know, lots of tweaks. And, I, I, you know, I negotiate for a living. And I think we need somebody who's going to get in there who's not a career politician, you know, who can actually work with the administration and get things done. I mean, the other thing I talked about is term limits. I'm actually a huge fan. I've already said I would only serve two terms. 12 years is enough. And then after that, it is time for someone else with fresh ideas and lots of enthusiasm to get in there. All right. Well, now I have a bunch of questions I had written down. Harry Reid had changed the filibuster rule, and they were really happy with it when – the Democrats were in control. Now the Republicans are in control, and that rule has still not been re-implemented. Where do you stand on the filibuster? Well, I think that um, I think you do have to look at this, right? I mean, everybody's happy is when you're the party in power, uh, but when you're not, I also am a big fan of actually working together. Um, one thing you probably don't know is that I am married to a Democrat. 
And um, so I am very used to reaching across the aisle. I reach across the kitchen table every day. And um, I think that we need, you know, we need less divisiveness. Um, one of the reasons I decided to run uh, was because I kept seeing all these government shutdowns. And it's like, you know, we need common sense ideas uh, to get in there, come up with solutions and try things out. And when they don't work, you just keep tweaking them. Um, and that's, that is the answer rather than sort of standing on principle. Okay, because uh, right now the Democrats are all crying into their soup because the filibuster rule is not there and they can't block, even though they still are blocking a lot of stuff we're doing. And that's the problem. You know, they're so stubborn that they won't even try. Like you said, Joe Brand won't even meet with Kavanaugh, and that's a huge problem here. Um, oh, yeah, I think it's I crazy. The other thing, yeah, go ahead. Mm-hmm. No, no, finish up. Go ahead, please. Well, I was going to say it like the tax bill. Look, the tax bill was good for so many people, right? It was fantastic. But New York was hard hit, right, because of incredibly high state and local taxes. You know, they did a study of the highest property taxes in the country. Unfortunately, it probably won't surprise you that nine out of the top ten were in New York, all right? But you can only cap $10,000. She sat in her hands and she said, oh, this is terrible. And I said, no, your job was to negotiate and make it better. You know, and instead, you could have gotten when the average property tax bill in Westchester County is $19,000 a year just in property taxes. It's crazy. You know, you should have made that cap instead of $10,000, $20,000. Look, Marco Rubio was able to double the child tax credit in exchange for his vote. But, you know, there was, there was nobody there fighting. And, and that's what I think we need is, you know, we need some good common sense proposals and people who are willing to roll up their sleeves and come up with solutions rather than just complaining about things. Well, unfortunately, one, that was one of the reasons why my husband and I left. You know, we were looking yeah. for a place where our dollars would go a long way, you know, between the electrical bill, the, between the oil heat and everything else. Uh, and then you throw in the taxes and the high cost of everything that goes along with it, all your goods and services, because if you have high taxes, it gets packed into everything else. Businesses don't pay those taxes. It's the consumer that pays the taxes in actuality. And we had to leave and just said, our dollar is not making it. So we come to a place that is more affordable, even though now we have to rein in our government here because they're trying to pull the same stunt. Too many northerners mm-hmm. move down south and they pull the northern stunts. <laughs> but uh, it's a really big problem because you have people trapped in New York that cannot leave, and they have to face those high costs. And it comes down to the, the lowest guy on the rung, the poorest person. Absolutely. Yeah, well, they just did a study of the most expensive places to live in the, in the country, you know, where your $100, you know, is worth the most and worth the least. Well, the most expensive place was Hawaii. It's an island in the middle of the Pacific. Everything has to, you know, be, you know, carted in there, you know, via ship. Of course it's expensive. But number two, New York. I mean, it's ridiculous. And that, that, that's, that's a lot of people's fault, but we need people to get in there and actually make this better, you know, not simply complain about it, and certainly, you know, not be trying to, you know, make the problems worse, which is crazy. You know, Kirsten Gillibrand well, we is gotta... proposing a financial services tax, which is ridiculous. I mean, it's only going to drive more people out of the city, you know, and, and out of New York. A million people like you have left New York since 2010. A million people. Man, well, we have a question in the chat room from Vito Esposito. Uh, matter of fact, Vito, she would be a good person on your show. He's got a show, Mama Mia No Sharia. Uh, but he's asking, while it's noble to talk <laughs> about reaching. Uh-huh. 
I'm a half Italian uh, my Jew, name is and Chivacci. I sit on that hand. My name is Chivacci, absolutely. Uh-huh. Fantastic. And my mother, my mother was Della Vecchia. <laughs> so, yeah. There we go. We got uh-huh. the yes. <laughs> well, he's asking, it's noble to talk about reaching across the aisle. The Democratic Party has no intention of doing so because of the disdain for President Trump. How would you handle that situation? Well, I mean, look, I'm a supporter of President Trump's. Um, He's a supporter of mine. Uh, You know, as I said, he, you know, just came out, you know, for me last week, which was fantastic. Um, But the only way to get things done is that you've got to get them um, to pass Congress and then, and then, most importantly, get them signed by the president. So you've got to work with the president. I actually think that this would be very helpful for New York. Um, to have a senator who can actually work with the administration, work with the president, and get things done, and especially working with the minority leader, you know, of the Senate as well. Um, so that's very much my case, and, and I think we're getting a lot of traction, and as I said, we're getting a lot more exposure, which is fantastic, um, because people, you know, want somebody who's going to be thinking about them, not running around the country, running for president. I mean, I was horrified to discover that Kirsten Gillibrand missed a vote last month. Why? I mean, it wasn't for a good reason. She was out campaigning for Tammy Baldwin in Wisconsin, although Senator Baldwin made it back for the vote. And then she went down to Illinois. Both of those senators made it back for the vote. But she stayed to campaign with the Pritzker family. And, I mean, that's not a good reason. I was like, I won't miss a vote unless I have a really good reason. And campaigning for someone else is not a good reason. You know, right now – it looks like Ice Queen and Jello Brand are like going neck and neck, but there neck is a comment following about reaching neck and neck right now. But um, comment is is that if you reach across the aisle, count your fingers afterwards. <laughs> I know. <Thanks> a lot. <laughs> uh, but I know that I know. I once I used I to say that, something. I was like reaching across the bed, and people did not like that. And so I'm, and I was like, oh, that's right. It's the wrong visual. The kitchen table is better. Uh-huh. <laughs> At home <laughs> with my Democratic husband. And actually, to his great credit. He is the one who convinced me to run. So I have not been, never been involved in politics. I'm a finance person, you know, and, and I have seen firsthand what it's like, you know, to run a country, run a company and have to meet payroll and only pay the money, you know, spend the money that you have. But I was asked if I'd be interested to run. And I said, you know, frankly, it's, I'm very flattered, but it's just not a good time. And I went home and I mentioned it to my Democratic husband. And he's like, are you crazy? Call him back and tell them yes. And he said, you know, you're always complaining about this, you know, the dysfunction and here's your opportunity to really do something. And he's like, you know, it's not a good time, but he said, it's never a good time and it's not a bad time. So I have to thank him for that. And quite frankly, you know, he is, I think he feels the Democratic Party has left him. Um, He's from a family, his great uncle, Jim Farley, was FDR's campaign manager. He was head of the Democratic Party, became postmaster general. And um, I think there are a lot of people like that who are, you know, really, you know, not happy with the, you know, wildly liberal direction that the party seems to have gone to. I mean, embracing socialism is crazy. Well, we used to call them Reagan Democrats. Uh, Your husband is more of a Reagan Democrat then, huh? Yep. Nice. Absolutely. Uh, Do you have time to take a call? Sure. Okay, let's bring in the caller. It looks like a Skype caller. Just waiting for the switchboard. There we go. You're on the air live at Southern Sense. I'm your hostess, Annie, the radio chick. Our guest is Shell Farley, who's running for uh, Senate against Christian Gillibrand. To whom am I speaking? This is Mike from Singapore. And, uh, you know, uh, yes, uh, regarding the Muslim ban, 
absolutely Trump did a great job because what already the ISIS and uh, the dark forces of the Islam are already living among us. And as a result, we have first get intelligence reports and first we have to find those people that are terror cells in United States of America, whether working with uh, Middle East countries such as Iran and uh, uh, Palestinians and etc. So first we have to find those people and neutralize them uh, anti-CTU, counter-terrorism unit in United States and then maybe we can open some do more door for more of the Muslims in the future coming in. Am I right or wrong? Please, go ahead. Well, I think you're absolutely right. We need to work together. No question about it. I mean, and that's one of these reasons why I'm so supportive of ICE. I mean, you know, ICE is the group that is, you know, stopping, you know, child pornographers off the dark web. I mean, it's stopping from terrorists from working on the dark web. Um, we need more cooperation, not less. I mean, Annie, is, you know, as you were talking about it, you know, when you were an NYPD police officer, um, you know, we've got to be working together. So, yes, I agree with you. You know, because... Uh, Iran has threatened already if you go to jihadwatch.org our beloved Robert Spencer he's doing great job and we adore him uh, and he he just put a story a while back ago a few days ago or still it is in his website you can find it it says Iran uh, quotes army IRGC Iranian Republic uh, Guard they have threatened to blow up the White House I mean, they said they, they, they are waiting to pretty much activate them and do the, the job. So are we going to see another September 11 similar thing event coming soon? I mean, we have to uh, tell Iran if anything happens uh, to our White House or any, any, any part of the United States, we are going to nuke them to the Stone Age. And that's well, I... the message we should... We should give them. Go ahead, please. Well, ICE was created after 9-11 to prevent another 9-11 from happening, which we absolutely do not want. Uh, so we have to make sure that, that we prevent it every way we possibly can. I think, you know, the administrations have been doing a good job on that, and I am very supportive. And, Annie, unfortunately, I am going to have to run after this, uh, but I've really enjoyed our, our time, and uh, I look forward to being back. Oh, you're definitely going to be back, that's for sure. And uh, if I do find out what the final tally is, because like I said, it's up on YouTube. I've got the video going, the video also on Facebook, as well as the chat room's open. So I'll take a look later, and I'll shoot over an email and let you know what it is. Perfect. Well, thank, thank you. Thank all your listeners. And um, I look forward to be back on before the election when we fire Gillibrand. So if you want more information, just go to the <laughs> website. Thanks. Thanks a lot, thank Jill. You. Bye. All right. My, now, uh, my dear, can I talk to you ahead, some more? Can you have me some more, sure. if possible, if you want? I, I'd be available to you. Um, sure, but right now we're waiting for my other guest to call in, and as soon as my co-host okay. comes back in the line, I'll find out if that is our guest on the line. Um, sure. We're supposed to have Travis Smith here talking about his book, uh, and Curtis, come back in. Otherwise, he's leaving me out there high and dry. But... Uh, 
Oh, yes, it is. All right, Mike, I'm going to have to put you on mute for now and let me bring my next guest okay, in on the sure, line. Sure. Thank you. Sure, sure, sure. All right. Thank you, dear. If I can hit the right buttons here and just hope we can get all the right buttons to go. There we go. And we welcome to our show uh, Professor Travis Smith, whose new book out is Superhero Ethics, Ten Comic Book Heroes, Ten Ways to Save the World, Which One Do We Need Most Now? Good afternoon, Travis. How are you today? I'm doing very well, Annie. Thanks for having me on the show. You know, when um, when uh, Stefan sent me over your proposal to say, you know, do you want to see this guy on the uh, on the show? And I'm saying, a political science professor. Hmm. And I started to read the stuff, and I'm going, holy cow, they're not all liberals. There are actually some conservatives out there. You blew me away. There is hope for our youth. <laughs> I, I I suppose if you want to put it that way, any sure. <laughs> <laughs> but you also uh, contribute to the uh, Daily Caller, so you know it, it, it was an amazing book. I have read it from cover to cover, and uh, there's little post-it notes all over the book for me to oh ask you questions. So I don't even that, know where to start. As a matter of fact. Well, in your book, you you explain there's three types of superhero movies. And, you know, I grew up in a different era, uh, and I stopped reading comic books back in the early 70s, probably late Mm -hmm. 60s. So reading about the characters in this book, I never thought of it because of having three different categories of superhero movies. I didn't pay much attention to it. But when you explain it, it was really interesting. So explain why there's three different types of superhero movies. Right. Um, I talk about how there are some movies that are obviously just pure amusement, um, and some of those, uh, they sort of uh, try to sort of make, sort of have a sort of cynical, sarcastic look at heroism and don't pretend that there's any sort of role model here to be found, uh, no moral lessons to be found. You're just to be amused. Uh, and uh, the Deadpool movies are an example of that. But what interests me more are whether or not the superheroes are depicted as characters that we can relate to, characters whose qualities, whose personalities, whose challenges, struggles, difficulties in their lives can be seen as in some way analogous to our own, and therefore we could imagine ourselves uh, following their example in order to handle uh, are admittedly more mundane and less fantastical uh, adventures in life. But nevertheless, they could provide us with examples of people to admire, to emulate, to provide as role models for our children for facing the kinds of difficulties that we all have in our regular everyday lives. Um, so there's those kinds of movies. And then there's another kind where instead they present uh, these extraordinary uh, beings with brains and powers and morals that make them so much superior to the rest of us. And in those stories, they're depicted as if they were sort of messiahs or saviors, where the world needs saving, or maybe even the whole galaxy needs saving. And us ordinary people can't do more than stand on the sidelines and cheer the ones we like on and scream in fear and terror at the bad guys in our midst. But otherwise, all we can do is hand over 
to these people who present themselves as more extraordinary than the rest of us and entrust to them that they'll use their superpowers well on our behalf and come to our rescue because the rest of us, we're just helpless. We're incapable of taking care of ourselves, uh, incapable of, of, of facing life's difficulties without someone to be our hero. And so I talk about how um, when, you, when you contrast those two, I tend to prefer the former to the latter. I tend to prefer those in which we see them providing us with examples of behavior that we could emulate and maybe make our lives happier, make ourselves better members of our communities, better citizens of our country, rather than the ones that depict us all as helpless victims that would all perish surely if, if we aren't saved by people we regard as more extraordinary than ourselves. You know, um, you talk a lot about, you know, responsibility in the book um, versus the liberal socialism. And as you said, the the last one, the third one, it makes you kind of dependent. And this is what we're doing in today's society, though. Instead of looking to better ourselves, we're looking for someone else to take care of us. And this is an issue you do address in the book a lot. Right. One of the things about superheroes is that they do, or they're all characters who've, uh, you know, something's happened to them beyond their control, whether as a result of uh, technology or mistreatment at the hands of others. And they all find that in order to be the best version of themselves, it's still up to them what kind of character they're going to have and how they're going to treat other people. And so they take personal responsibility for being the best versions of themselves they can, no matter what has happened to them in the past. And then secondarily, they realize that part of being the best version of themselves is what I call interpersonal responsibility. They have to they have to be good for others. You know, they have to help their neighbors and their communities in various ways. And it's not just a matter of a sort of purely self interested version of taking care of oneself but it's 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 do, uh, being as good as one can for oneself and for others but they don't presume to take let's say collective responsibility they don't presume that on the basis of their own particular uh, excellences their own particular uh, you know great qualities whether it's their powers or their minds or their morals they never they never presume that on account of those what they should do is rule everybody they don't think that it's their responsibility to take total responsibility for everybody else uh, that's the kind of thing that instead in comic book stories of course is the domain of the supervillains whenever you've got somebody who thinks that they ought to rule you know that they're the bad guy yeah, well, it's funny because to, you. Oh, I was oh, just getting ready to say to... that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> mine would be real quick. Go ahead, Curtis. When I when I grew up as a young boy, my comic book heroes were like Batman, Superman, Spider Man, and with me, it was more of a moral theme that that piqued my interest. You know, good versus evil. Now, I don't read comics now, but do you believe that um, good versus evil is a thing that is still in comic books today, or have they changed um, their structure as far as, um, you know, who's a good guy, who's a bad guy? Or, I mean, because some, today some of the good guys look like or act like bad guys. Right. Um, that's a fair question, I think. I mean, there was a rise of the so-called anti-hero in 80s and 90s comic books. 
Um, there are ways in which you might say the flaws of the character are highlighted a bit more now rather than them being presented as a totally squeaky squeaky clean model of righteousness but in some in some ways the 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 flaws that they have does humanize them and then make them maybe more accessible to us more familiar to us better capable of then seeing ourselves reflected in them um, and so uh, it, 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 there is a certain degree of greater complexity, moral complexity being portrayed in the stories. And there certainly are some characters whose stories and some movies that I do not regard as, you know, providing positive role models. And I don't take my young son to see all of these movies, that's for sure. Um, but by and large, I actually find it kind of surprising that there's something that whatever the sort of ways moral opinions are swaying in the breeze in the popular culture today, um, it, it, there's something about superhero stories that uh, defy uh, uh, too much meddling in the fundamental basic moral lessons that they teach about uh, as Annie said, responsibility and learning to be brave. That's something I don't think that we teach the younger generation enough these days is the virtue of courage uh, or, or uh, just ordinary everyday virtues like that, that we all need in order to live the best lives we can in a world that's always uh, going to confront us with situations that are, are fearful and challenges that we need to be, learn confidence to overcome. And so there's something inherent to hero stories that that uh, that make it so that uh, we 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 see characters and learn to admire characters who exhibit bravery uh, and 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 step up uh, in in those ways. Well, you know, you kind of like took some of the thunder out of it because I was going to read a passage where you had stated that our society too often sanctions timid passivity and outsized outrage and we see that right now uh with the antifa with the anti-gun and everything else we either discourage or downplay everyday bravery moderation restraint resilience generosity gratitude decency sociability sacrifice the exercise of good judgment and the development of intelligent intellectual prowess you know uh we don't teach critical thinking uh we don't teach about i try my best in the classroom <laughs> but you know it used to be that you know we didn't have welfare so the local churches and charities would be there for those that were the downtrodden we didn't rely on government we didn't rely on a um i'm trying to think of the word uh and it just went right out of my head just had a senior moment uh it's, it's a pampered society we have we want to be catered to rather than looking out for our fellow man. And when I was reading the proposal for your book, and I'm saying, all right, you've got, you take 10 superheroes, and you basically pit their characters against each other. And I think the two I found most interesting is that was one was Spider-Man and the other one was Wolverine. And both of them were victims. And in today's society, I'm a victim. You've got this victimhood mentality, so now you owe me. Where in the difference here is Spider-Man does not play the victim and neither does Wolverine. They take responsibility for what their actions are. They can't change what happened to them, but they can make themselves better people. And I think that's a huge moral uh, in the book. Yeah, I was. I, some people 
think that um, looking out for themselves, being self-interested is how do I get my side to win, right? How do I achieve victory or how do I secure the greater slice of the pie for me and my own at the expense of others? And what I try to argue in the book from the perspective of of classical ethics is that there's nothing you've got more self-interest in than the kind of person that you're going to be. You have no more self-interest in anything than the kind of character you're going to develop. Who are you going to be What, you know, on the inside? And how are you going to treat others on the basis of that? And, and, and so I, I do use characters like Spider-Man and Wolverine to show how uh, we all uh, confront all kinds of obstacles in our lives, we all have uh, been wronged in various ways. We all find our lives falling far from perfect. And the more important question then becomes, well, how are you going to deal with that? And how are you going to present yourself to the world? And how are you going to treat others with respect and dignity uh, despite all of that? Yeah, it, it, it's, you talk about also uh, the animal within or those that have these inner demons and they battle them. And it's another thing that here in today's society, if you've got an inner demon, a, the beast within, we have to forgive you because it's not your fault. Whereas we have these superheroes that take responsibility and try to control those urges. You, you show it again with Wolverine's another one and with the Hulk. Yeah, I look at the Wolver- I look at the characters of Wolverine and the Hulk. You mentioned uh, my my expression of outsized outrage being something that's a little too much in the public these days. Uh, incivility being embraced by people in the public discourse a little too much. And I think that social media has a lot to do with that. I think that people have gotten the idea that they can prove themselves to be a good and righteous person so long as they have the correct opinions and shout them really loudly and get very angry at the people who they disagree with. And that that should be good enough to prove oneself uh, uh a righteous person and that and I talk about how the Hulk represents and the Wolverine represent different kinds of people we encounter on the internet a lot where people are really really angry because they feel that either their own greatness has been challenged or they aren't being left alone when they want to be left alone or that they see that the the group that they identify with like Wolverine with the mutants is being uh, what they perceived as harmed in some way, and that they have to respond as Wolverine and Hulk often do in their stories with uncivilized, extreme outrage. And um, so I do use those characters to address that that kind of phenomenon that we see around us every every day if you're scrolling through your Twitter feeds and your Facebook feeds. Uh, on the subject that you brought up about, you know, people being victims and it's not your fault, I said that I draw on on um, classical ethics in my book, and there used to be an understanding that if you treated somebody, if you treated somebody like they couldn't be held responsible for themselves, if you treated somebody like they couldn't be accountable, that um, whatever they do or whoever they are, it's not their fault. What you're effectively saying about that person is that they're not a free being, that they're not a moral agent. And I don't know how you could possibly imagine that you could treat another person with dignity and respect if you were denying their agency or denying them the capacity to be a free and responsible person. I don't understand that, Annie. 
<laughs> I agree. I really truly agree with that. You know, this your book is I didn't I didn't know what to expect when I was reading it. I said, All right, fine, what does comic books have to do with what's going on today? And I found so many parallels to what is going on today with that's in your book and I just never equated because, you know, I grew up, I left the comic books way behind. Um yeah. I grew up in an era watching Steve Reed uh play um uh, Superman, the 1950 versions, you know, that's, yeah, the old Hercules, you know, and, you know, there, they didn't go into the morphing of the character that comic book companies have done, Um, so I found it really fascinating, but again, we talk about, you know, hey, listen, you know, let someone else worry about this, the superhero will come in, save the day, Um, otherwise, you know, if if the superhero's not around and the guy comes to mug you, hand over your wallet, you know, they're not going to hurt you. There's a problem with that. If you are passive, if you don't take responsibility for what is going around you, you can't always control, but you can try to direct whatever is going as best you can. So don't hand over your wallet. You know, run away. Whatever you're going to do, fight. But if you don't do something and challenge that mugger, he's going to or she's going to feel emboldened to come back. And again and again, if it's not you, it'll be your neighbor or the old lady down the street. So we need to take action when something bad happens around us. Right. There, there's no there's no society of rights-bearing citizens without citizens who know how to stand up for their rights. Okay. Right. Can you want to expound? Um, well, right. I mean... Um, Right. If we only have our rights because we entrust others to come to uh, their defense, uh, then then uh, um, uh, we 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 aren't. Um, yeah, I don't know how else to put that, Annie. But uh, um, off the top of my head, I'm sorry. I, I, I'm trying to think of a better way to put that. <laughs> Our rights are only as strong as our ability to defend them. Um, and perfect. and does that make more sense? Mm-hmm. Absolutely perfect. Go ahead, Curtis. Yeah, I wanted to go back to what you were saying, Annie, about the parallels. Um, in the comic book series that I used to read growing up, the heroes and villains were pretty much well-defined. But today, I don't think, you know, it seems like there's a blur between the two because take, for instance, what you were saying about um, um, Antifa. Okay, I know some people on the left who think those guys are great. You know, that's their heroes. And to, you know, in my perspective, they're (laughs) they're fascists, you know. So... You know, I guess what I'm trying to say is, um, like they say, beauty is in the eyes of the beholder. I guess we can say the heroes and the villains are in the eyes of the beholder these days. Uh, Am I correct to um, to feel that way, Professor? Well, Curtis, I think you're right that there's always the case that uh, uh, there's a certain kind of relativism inherent to heroism in so far as 
uh, our concepts of what we regard as admirable or praiseworthy are always going to be relative to our own culture, our own commitments, our own convictions. So people with different cultures, commitments, and convictions will definitely have uh, different conceptions of, of heroes. And uh, I'm reminded at the beginning of Star Wars Episode Three, even George Lucas admitted that there'd be heroes on both sides in the in the war in the galaxy in the Star Wars universe. And uh, that said, um, one of the things I, I, I emphasize in, in superhero ethics is the way in which the sort of classic, most well-known, most famous superheroes in the comic book tradition, the ones I tend to focus on in the book, I don't focus a lot on the really obscure characters or the most recent ones. I could have easily gone into those. I've read too many comic books in my day, Curtis. To, uh, but I wanted to write a book that was familiar about characters who were familiar and and the classic uh, superheroes both represent a certain kind of archetypes regarding a human good character but they're also pre- pretty uh much representative of the values of a liberal and democratic society of the sort that the united states was founded upon in the first place in which um Right, they respect, as I was saying before, they respect each other's freedoms. Nobody presumes that they should be ruling over anybody else. And even though the superheroes themselves have extraordinary abilities, they still treat other people like they're equals. And they still respect people, even people who they disagree with. None of the superheroes decide to scroll through anybody's uh, social media footprint first in order to make sure they agree with them before they come to their rescue, but instead recognize that anyone and everyone might need uh, some assistance and whether or not they agree with you or disagree with you on political questions isn't the basis on which we should deem them as worthy of respect and assistance. Uh, and so this sort of understanding that human beings have dignity uh, treat them as equals, that we should uh, be free, even though it is also the case that we ought to come to each other's assistance. These are the kinds of values that the classic superheroes do represent uh, and that I emphasize as models of heroism for the kind of society that uh, we have the, the blessing to enjoy. There's so much in this book that is absolutely fantastic, you know, which is called Superheroes Ethics, uh, 10 Comic Book Heroes, 10 Ways to Save the World. Which one do we need most now? And I'll let you know, uh, Travis, that there's a link up on the show page. So the majority of people that listen uh, can click on the link. Uh, they'll click directly on Superhero Ethics and go to Amazon to get your book. Uh, I've been putting it up in the chat rooms also. So this is going live up on Facebook right now, as well as YouTube, as well as all the other places that are carrying me. So they're all can see where they can get your book at. Um, One of the things that I found most interesting. Oh, no problem. Um, I wish you could see a picture of all the little tabs I have in the book and everything uh, with all (laughs) my notes. And I normally don't write in books. It's for me, I'm sort of like a Puritanist, uh, but I, I use pencil in your book with little side notes. See, I tell and, my uh, students, I tell my students they should always write in their books. I said, treat treat your books like they're your friends and your enemies, and you have to have a dialogue with the book. If the book can't talk back to you, uh, but you can have an argument with the book, and that's what the margins are for. Well, I used to do that when I was in high school and college, and I got out of it because I like preserving the books in their pristine condition. Um, <laughs> Now you sound like a comic book collector, Annie. (laughs) (laughs) 
but uh, in your book, I have pencil. I, I've learned to use the pencil so that if I want to, I can erase it. Uh, but you talk about, like, we'll take um, Iron Man. Um, sure. Here he is, someone that he falls down, he comes back. He falls down, he comes back. Uh, but he has a different moral value. And you talk about the different types of moral values. Um, he feels that he is the ultimate. He is, it's his ego. He feels he always has the right answer, so everyone should follow him. Um, then you have others that say, all right, I may not have the right answer, uh, but I don't need to rule everyone. Where you have someone like Tony Stark that says, walks in the room, and I don't need a name tag. And it's funny, when I was <laughs> reading that section of the book, and this is a true story, I was reading that section of the book, and they were doing driver introductions for NASCAR. And as I came up to that passage, I happened to look up at the TV screen, Kyle Busch came up on the stage, and they were introducing the drivers. He gets up to the microphone. I don't need to introduce myself. And I said, holy cow. <laughs> what a coincidence. Um, but you, have, you talk about ego and humility in the book and the importance of the humility over ego. Uh, right, yeah. There's a scene in Iron Man 3 that you're referring to when Tony Stark shows up at a soiree, and he's got it on his name tag something like, uh, you know who I am, I think is the expression. You know who I am. And I, I mention that this has a divine and diabolical connotations, right? In, in, uh, in the Jewish tradition, I am is a, is a name for God. And, uh, but the you know who I am rings a bell to me as a Rolling Stones fan. It sounded like a sympathy for the devil uh, kind of lyric to me. Uh, and that's important to understand Iron Man's character. He has this uh, pretension to be almost a divine-like person because he would recreate human nature with his technology. He would create a new being, from his point of view, superior to human beings to replace himself and potentially the rest of us. Uh, at least his technology could, in theory, do so. And so uh, making himself into a new creator, like, uh, like, like uh, God himself. But at the same time, you can raise questions regarding just how divine is this kind of new creator that Tony Stark represents, in which um, Tony Stark uh, is trying to create a machine-man hybrid that he takes to be superior to an ordinary human being. I don't know if you and Curtis remember in the original Star Wars movie. Do you remember when Obi-Wan Kenobi uh, says to Luke Skywalker that Darth Vader is more machine than man now, twisted and evil? And do you remember that? I don't know if you remember that line. But, yes. Uh, yeah. Back oh, in, yeah. Back in oh, 1977, yeah. uh, Obi-Wan Kenobi didn't need to add twisted and evil. We understood as viewers, we understood if somebody was more machine than man now that that's just not mm -hmm. good at all. But now in the you know, early 21st century, the idea that we could somehow make human beings superior by combining ourselves with uh, metal and silicon and electricity, uh, parts of the natural world that uh, we used to understand to be sort of lower uh, than, than human beings in the order of nature. And now we think that we can take what's lower than human beings and combine it with human beings to make something superior than human beings. And that's throwing the order of the universe, as it used to be historically and traditionally understood, on its head. 
And so, uh, again, as I said, what, 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 metaphorically, what do you take it to mean when you when you subvert the natural order and place the lower over the higher in order to create something that you take to be more superior still? And that's why I think it's fascinating and telling just how proud, I think that's the exact right word to use for Tony Stark, how proud of a man he is. Um, and I discussed in the book, however, that his own pride uh, can be his own undoing. Uh, he's a person that is also famous for being a womanizer, being an alcoholic, someone who tries, as it were, to find, have to find ways in order to shut his brain off uh, and, and just to, to feel hedonistic pleasure in order to maybe get away from the further conclusions that he might draw about himself if he were to obtain some more greater self-awareness regarding the kind of person he is and his and, and uh, that from his own point of view, uh, uh, he, he's not worth much at all. He thinks he's the greatest, smartest human being, but on his own terms, uh, from the perspective of the universe as he understands itself, he's utterly insignificant. And so his, he doesn't just have pride; his, he has vanity in the classical in the classical sense. His pride is totally empty. Man, you just touched on so many different things as you're going through that. My mind is going a mile a minute because if you look at today's society now in Denmark, they're aborting fetuses because they may have Down syndrome. Uh, just to make sure you had a superior being being born, we're using fetal stem cell research which is questions the ethics in that one uh, when there's other stem cells that could be done. Uh, we have artificial intelligence on the rise. Uh, you have self-driving cars. and Hey, they're not always working because a couple of people have died from them. Um, you, you think about all the technology that we're expanding right now and how it correlates to what has been predicted. I can say it predicted in these early comic books up through today. And how it is mirroring our society. Uh, you talk about the guardians in the Green Lantern, a benevolent uh, group that was just looking out and caring for. They had the power to rule, but they didn't. And this is what we're seeing today. And as we're looking at these superheroes and ethics, and I would say probably morals, we should be looking at also because there's a difference between morals and ethics. Uh, you know, and ethical man knows it's wrong to cheat on his wife. A moral man will not cheat on his wife. Uh, that's the difference between that, uh, which you obviously know. I'm preaching to the choir. But we're looking at today who we're putting up there as our heroes. And we have politicians that we're looking to be our superheroes. And we keep putting them in office and voting for them over and over again, expecting a different outcome. And instead, as you say, in the book, we are looking toward a more liberal, progressive society than our founding fathers thought to be. Yeah, that's a lot to unpack there, Annie. Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> like I said, my um, mind was going a mile a minute. <laughs> on the subject of technology, um, I mean, technology is inherently about trying to make things better, right? Newer and better um, and more powerful, maybe even more importantly, more powerful. Uh, and uh, it's hard to imagine how um, a principle like the principle of equality can possibly withstand 
the imperatives of technology that are always looking for the, the superior and the more powerful. The idea that we're going to succeed in, in maintaining an easy balance between technological power and greater equality seems to be, well, it's, uh, it's a tremendous risk to uh, embark upon that experiment. But the people who are have uh, complete faith in technology and then a sort of uh, faith in our own ability to always solve everything with a technological solution, even the problems that our own technological progress causes, uh, that, that, that's a, as I said, that's a real faith that some people have. Um, on, on, in terms of who are our, our own heroes, uh, right, there's always going to be people who will step forward and say, um, I'm so good, I'm so smart, I'm so just, uh, please give me more and more power, and I promise that I will use it to be your hero and come to your rescue. There's always going to be people who offer themselves up like that, and there's always going to be people who are glad to surrender their power to people who make that promise. Uh, that's that's as much part of the human condition as well, I think, Annie. Um, and and so I do look at the way in which uh, these issues of power and superpower are are portrayed in superhero stories to sort of explore uh, the the degree to which there are these inherent tensions in among the commitments that we as modern people have. I mean, we we love technology for some good reasons. It does relieve an awful lot of suffering, but it, as you've pointed out, it can cause a lot of suffering as well. Or, you know, we, we have technology in order to live more dignified lives, but technology can sometimes also undermine our dignity. Uh, and what I like about superhero stories and why I continue to be fascinated by them is that if you read them generously, you will find out that for decades and decades they have been exploring some of these fundamental tensions in our commitments in modern society. Yeah, not, wow. to put, uh, not to put this all as an atheist, but that you also have a religious element in there. And um, it, when I was reading uh, Spider-Man, since I am from New York and I'm familiar with the area uh, that the story centers on, uh, I realized when I was reading it that there was a... Jewish element into there where he does expose anti-Semitism in there and then when I was when I picked up the book to start reading it I'm saying 10 superheroes I'm wondering if he's going to mention Jesus and in a way you do uh, when you come up with the uh, character of Thor and you show that the importance of being believing in something better than ourselves that there is something out there that we should strive for and to uh, emulate um I found that very important, which is missing today's society. Because if you happen to be someone of faith, uh, you're looked down as if you're an ignorant boob, someone from the backwoods, that you you believe in hocus pocus. Um, It's frowned upon in today's society. One of the things I tried to do in superhero ethics, Annie, was I tried to combine... Uh, an appreciation for both the Western philosophical tradition as well as the biblical tradition in order to explore and examine these characters. And there's no question that the the creators of these stories were also steeped in these traditions as well, and they they put them to use in designing these characters and, and giving them their adventures. And there's no way to get around the fact that there's always a sort of uh, similarity between hero characters and divine characters. You know, the, the ancients would make their heroes out to be demigods, right? 
And we in in modern society and as people who've inherited the legacy of the of the Christian West often have hero stories uh, that draw upon the biblical tradition and 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 uh, the model of virtue that's there presented the con- conceptions of uh, a redeemer or messiah and then tell you know and then fictionalize these and meta- turn them into metaphors for other kinds of fantastical characters and superheroes today seem to be the one of the main repositories for those kinds of stories and so it is the case in the book I look at characters before we talked about the Hulk and Wolverine who are the most animal of the superheroes I also discuss some that are more divine like Superman or Thor I could have gone even further and talked about characters like Wonder Woman or the Silver Surfer who are arguably even more divine than Superman and Thor Uh, but there's definitely in the source material already reason to think that if you want to understand these characters well uh, you need to look at them uh, from with a lens that has some appreciation for the biblical tradition this is something I try to teach my students generally whether whether you believe in anything or not if you want to understand modern Western society you can't understand it without some appreciation of the of the various traditions that we've inherited and that includes the biblical tradition well i extended the show for a few extra minutes because there's so much more to talk about i mean i have not even gone through one-fourth of the tabs uh in here uh <laughs> but just a little side note uh travis that you know uh when i was in my senior year of high school and into college one of my side pursuits you know was a hobby of mine was comparing ancient mythology with the Bible. And there are so many similarities, which only just reinforces the Bible um, and how societies uh, had borrowed from each other in the mythologies. And the basic ABCs of each mythology is the same as in the Bible. Um, So I found it very fascinating when I was reading about the characters and I was going through the mythologies uh, in my head, and I'm glad you picked out Thor, because uh, that was one of my favorite ones. But you also ad- uh, address in there globalism, uh, the one world order idea that is, is now <laughs> here today. Uh, but another thing, uh, just last thing, I really, because I said this 15,000 things I could talk to you about it in this book, but you talk about the power of speech. And our political superheroes today use that power of speech through the media and the social networks. Uh, and it's a very powerful tool. You know, you use Captain America as an example, hoping that speech is used as a benevolent thing and not as a tool, a, a, a weapon. Uh, but you talk about the ability to motivate people. And this is what we have to look out in today's political arena, is what is the motivation of that speech and how is it going to move you to action? That's, that's fascinating, Annie. Uh, Kevin America is known for his speechifying. Nobody can rally the superhero community to action better than Captain America. Captain America loves to speechify even when he's confronted with supervillains and terrorists and try to persuade them to change their ways and to make a rhetorical appeal uh, to uh, ordinary citizens as well in order to try to be inspiring. Uh, but his, his speech is always one that tries to remind people to live up to their core values of freedom and equality and respect for each other uh, rather than to use power as a way to make 
to subdue people and make them submit uh, and and surrender uh, their 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 freedom uh, to others who promise to to uh, to uh, be their hero. Um, on the subject of globalism, right, I, I talk a little bit about citizenship. And uh, you've heard today, these days, people talk about wanting to be a global citizen. That's an expression that I'm sure you've heard. Mm-hmm, unfortunately. Yeah, <laughs> yeah well, I, I talk about how that, that's a contradiction in terms. To be a citizen, you not only have to have rights, you have to participate in your political society, you have to be an active member of your community, you have to be working together with your fellow citizens, and that includes the people you disagree with in in a, in a fashion that, that uh, works together for a shared common good and future together. Uh, and, you, and you aren't really a free person, you aren't really a citizen unless you have a voice and unless... Uh, you you have uh, you're actively involved, and we all already know today in our own societies how hard it is to feel like we have a voice, and and all the all the reasons, all the excuses we come up with for not bothering to fulfill our offices as citizens, um, and and sometimes we are ready just to go to the sub-political level, like go on social media, or just uh, attend a rally or uh, or march and and shout you know inarticulate sounds loudly that falls short of what good citizenship stands for but at the local level to the state level to the national level we all see how further it seems uh, we are from getting to live out the experience of a of a political participant and active citizen and if you if you put that up to the global level any there's no way you could possibly uh, be a citizen of the globe uh, the, the, how microscopic anybody's voice anybody's influence anybody's activity would be on a global scale on a global scale we'd we'd have no 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 possible reality other than just to be subjects of uh, an extremely distant power that would be beyond any possibility of of uh, of uh, of, of uh, you know uh, measuring ourselves against it in any meaningful way, let alone participating in it. Well, you know, I, I found it funny because when I was reading your book, I was thinking back to the 1960s series of Star Trek, and how the idea of globalism was presented in that, and yet you still had the sparring between Chekhov and Sulu about their nationality compared to being a global or universal citizen. Uh, but you got to remember that when people quote the poem on the Statue of Liberty, they quote everything except for the final verse. As I hold my golden light to the door, meaning we know there was a need, a means test for people to enter our country. There has to be a way to protect our borders and our citizens. But uh, I extended the show, like I said, it's a fascinating book. Um, I encourage everyone to read it because um, there's a lot to learn in it. Superhero Ethics, 10 Comic Book Heroes, 10 Ways to Save the World. Which one do we need most now? And I'm not revealing the ending, folks. <laughs> so, Travis, <laughs> I've got to have you back on. And I'll get I would love to Steven, be back see if we can get you back on. Because yeah, there's, I, I there's just so want to say to follow up on your last 
Well, you're saying, I mean, the, the book is written in some way so that if you are a comic book fan and lover of the superhero movies, the book is something you will, uh, might enjoy. And if you know people who like those movies, they might enjoy it. But you don't have to be someone who's read 10,000 comic books and seen all the movies to, to read the book. Um, my attitude is, even if you're not uh, someone who loves comic books and superhero movies, but you're the kind of person who is you know, concerned about or curious about the questions like, uh, who's a good role model and what kinds of role models uh, does our popular culture today put forward as examples that are that might influence uh, our children? Uh, and you're interested in, in in wondering what does our popular culture say to answer that question of who should we regard as admirable, who's our hero? Then even if you don't know all the comic books and movies, I tried to make the book accessible to that kind of reader as well. Uh, it is a fantastic read. I I read it all in two days, and I. Like I said, if you were to see the book, I'm holding it before the camera so people can see all the little tabs, color tabs and <laughs> notes I marked on it. And uh, like Judge Janine found out, I do read the book you sent me <laughs> before I do the interview. Travis, it has been so much fun, and thank you for the good work you do. Uh, and like I said, I'll get a hold of Stephen and get you back on the show. It is with you, political science. Oh, man, so much to talk about on that one. Sounds great, Annie. Thank you very much for having me on the show today. I really appreciate it. That is my pleasure. All right, folks, check it out. Mine uh, too. Travis Smith. Travis Smith is called Superhero Ethics up on Amazon. Oh, we're out of time, Curtis. Like I said, I did extend the show because uh, there was so much more to talk about. We needed more than just uh, th- those few minutes we had. I wish I had been able oh, yeah. to give him the whole hour, but. Um, yeah. Unfortunately, we got a lineup of people waiting to get on the show, and there's only just so many can fit in uh, at this time. And I'm blessed with that. So I want to thank everyone for joining in, everyone that was up in the chat room, uh, as well as up on ASHR Media, Lone Star, Daily News, YouTube, Facebook. So I'll leave you all. We will be back here. Oh, good Lord, what do we got? Oh, we got Congressman Ted Yoho this Friday. All right. Ted Yoho. So that'll be great. Yep. All right, so I'll see you all here back here on Friday, same bat time, same bat station. I say good night and God bless as I leave you when the roll is called up yonder. <laughs>